You can't be in the evangelism game, I believe, in the 21st century and not be in the compassion game. Because if you're not in the compassion game, if you're not in the mission of, of loving your neighbors, meeting needs in your community and the world, nobody's going to take your message seriously. Nobody's going to, it's not going to have credibility to it, you know. It, it, we're we're going to be put to shame when our neighbors, who are not followers of Jesus, out-love us, out-serve, you know, out-meet needs. So if we're going to be in the evangelism game, and I believe we're called to be, we're going to have to be in the compassion game. And I think that's just following the example of Jesus. We have a lot more in common with our neighbors than we might think we do, you know. They love their kids, we love our kids. They eat three meals a day, we eat three meals a day, you know. Uh, they feel financial pressures, we feel financial pressures. And so we've got to look for those commonalities. Well, hey, Parkview, good morning. Are you good this morning? Man, you sound good, you look good, and uh, it is great to be back at Parkview. I was here about a year and a half ago, and it's always fun to get invited to places that you love and respect, and there are a few churches that I respect more than this one. But it's really fun when you can get invited back somewhere. I never get invited back anywhere. And uh, so it's great to see you. It's great to be with you uh, today. And uh, I love your pastor. He's a wild man. And uh, I have known... Uh, Tim and Denise, literally, we were all little kids. We knew each other growing up. True story. I have all the dirt on him, and I can be bought. And uh, my, my wife, Barbara, and I make it a point every year. Uh, we get together with Tim and Denise at least three times a year. And uh, such great mutual ministry friends of ours and such encouragers. And we just love what God is doing in this church. You do know you have one of the great pastors in America, don't you, right here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I bring you greetings from uh, the church I serve, Eastside Christian Church, Anaheim, California, the home of the Ducks, the Angels, Mickey Mouse, and the most, I mean, happiest place on earth. <laughs> and uh, if you ever get out to California, I hope you'll come see us. And I know some of you weren't around when I was here a year and a half ago, and like, you're like wondering if, Gene, is that your real voice? Do you really sound that way? And uh, I get that everywhere I go. And, you know, I, I told your audio team I'd give them 100 bucks if they could make me sound like Barry White this weekend. <laughs> you know, kind of, Jesus loves you, baby. Something like that. Uh, but instead, when uh, God was handing out voices, I got one that sounds like I've been inhaling helium for four days. <laughs> so that's what you got, okay? Hey, uh, I wonder if you'd do me a favor, uh, Parkview, joining us via videocast is the church I serve, Eastside Christian Church in Anaheim, California, and our soon-to-open campus in Park Rapids, Minnesota. Would you give them a big welcome? They're joining us today. Yeah. I love you, Eastside. I'll see you all next weekend live and in person. So, uh, do you remember the first time you stood on a diving board. Do you remember the fear maybe? Or maybe it was excitement, maybe apprehension, anxiety, anticipation. I mean, I have all that right now because this is going to be a hard fall if I go down right here. <laughs> I remember the first time I stood on one of these. I was six years old. And my brother Greg and I had ridden our bikes to the grand opening of the new park district pool in my hometown down in Lincoln, Illinois. 
I mean, this was a big deal in Lincoln, Illinois. I mean, it was mass pandemonium, hundreds and hundreds of kids. We hadn't seen this much excitement since the tractor pull at the county fair. And so everybody in town is there. My brother and I, were swimming down at the shallow end of the pool, and we decided we'd go down to the diving boards. There were three diving boards, and uh, we got in line, and there was like 40 kids in line, and we're just talking and laughing, and I'm not really paying attention or anything. And all of a sudden, it's my turn. And I go up, and, and there were like three steps going up, and this was not like a diving board this far from the water. It, it was like four or five feet above the water, but it felt like 40 or 50 feet to me when I got up there. And, and I looked out, and my heart started pounding, and my pulse was racing, and my forehead was sweating, and my stomach was turning, and I really, honestly, I wanted to get back and climb back down, but there were all these kids behind me going, just jump! <laughs> just jump in! And so pride took over, and I just jumped. And I didn't die. I didn't drown. I didn't lose my breath. I didn't choke. In fact, it was kind of fun. I got right back out of the pool and I got back in line and I did it again. And I did it again. And I did that over and over and over again that day. And I found out a very important principle in life. There are some things in life that we never find out how great they are unless you are willing to risk it and just jump in. I mean, isn't that true? There are a lot of foods. I never would have found out how great they are if I hadn't risked it and just jumped in. I grew up in the Midwest, grew up kind of a meat and potatoes diet. I'd never really had spicy Mexican food until I moved out west. And then people said, hey, try this, uh, this, this green mushy stuff called guacamole and put that. And they thought, you want me to eat that? But I risked it and just jumped in. And I'm so glad I did. Can I get a muy bueno for some good Mexican food, you know? And then I had some friends say, uh, hey, you ought to try some sushi. I'm like, raw fish? You eat raw fish. You're kidding me. And they were like, no. I said, where I come from, that's bait. <laughs> but I risked it. And just jumped in. And I'm telling you, some sushi with some set your nostrils on fire wasabi, pretty good stuff. Anybody feel the love on that one? Yeah. Good stuff. There are some things in life, you never know how great they are until you risk it and just jump in. And friends, I want to challenge you today, in honor of the Savior that we follow, in honor of the one who emptied himself and made himself nothing and died on a cross for us, I want to challenge you to risk it and just jump in and serve as a volunteer in the church of Jesus Christ. Not because the church needs us, but because Jesus said when we follow him, he said, come and die. That's a catchy recruiting slogan, isn't it? <laughs> Come and die. You know, the University of Michigan did a study on volunteerism, and they found just the opposite is true. They found people who volunteer and serve have a 60% lower premature death rate than those who don't volunteer. So, friends, now it's official. Volunteer or die. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Eastside Church, where I serve, and Parkview Church, we have a lot in common. 
When I was in college, I did an internship at Eastside Christian Church in Southern California. When Tim Harlow was in college, he did an internship at Eastside Church in Southern California. For the last few years, Eastside's been one of the fastest growing churches in the U.S. For the last few years, Parkview's been one of the fastest growing churches in the U.S. Eastsiders sponsor over a thousand children in Kenya. Parkviewers sponsor over a thousand children in Kenya. God blessed me with pretty good looks. God blessed Tim with a pretty good looking wife. But here's the thing, both of our churches are dreaming, praying these days about making multiplied impact in our community for people who need the hope, who need the grace, who need the purpose, who need a future with Jesus Christ. And we're dreaming about multiplied campuses and starting new campuses. And that means hundreds of others are going to have to step up to serve on existing campuses and some are going to go and be a pioneer somewhere else at a new campus. And you'll never know how great it is until you risk it and just jump in. Now today, if you have a smart device, I, I want to invite you or a Bible or something to open to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't, I've put some text on your outline. And I want to begin unpacking for you a theological, biblical truth that for many of you is going to be mind-stretching. It's going to be life-redefining for you, maybe even transforming let me give you some background to this text in 1 Peter chapter 2. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, God's Spirit worked through a select group of people. And they were known as priests. Aaron was the first priest. His sons followed him. And there were very few priests. Priests were a very inner circle of people. They were considered special people. They had two primary responsibilities. The first is they represented the people to God. You as an ordinary person couldn't go directly to God. You had to have a priest who was a mediator who would communicate to God on your behalf. And then the second responsibility of the priest was they communicated God's truth. They communicated God's word to people. But when you come to the New Testament, Jesus arrives on the scene. And the religious culture gets turned upside down as he starts making statements like, uh, hey, you, yeah, you over there, you're the, you're the light of the world to like ordinary people. Oh, hey, you, you, you're going to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Jesus would make these statements about ordinary people right in front of the religious establishment of his day, the priest. Then on a day called Pentecost, a bunch of the followers of Jesus had gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem and they had been praying and all of a sudden they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And there, were, there was this unusual thing that were tongues of fire, it looked like, that came to rest on every one of them, not a select few. God's spirit was resting on every head, not just on a select few. And from that moment on, it was clear, this is for every follower of Jesus. Every follower of Jesus has direct access to God. Every follower of Jesus has the supernatural power of God, the Holy Spirit in them. And every follower of Jesus has a new identity. You say, well, what was that new identity that happens? Here's our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Peter writes, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, as you put your faith in him, as you follow him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, 
like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a, say it, holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're a holy priesthood. And then a few verses later in this same chapter, verse 9, Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The message paraphrase of the Bible puts that last verse with these words. You are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. You are chosen by God. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has a high calling on your life and he has given you a new identity. I know, you're like this sounds crazy. You're a priest. This is what we sometimes call in the church the priesthood of all believers. We're all priests. Now, without delving into too many centuries of church history, Somewhere along the line, churches decided if we hire a few professional Christians, you know, we'll even pay them a little bit and we'll just kind of passively sit back and we'll watch them carry out the work of the ministry. Everyone else would sit on the sidelines. Everyone else would sit on their gifts and become like our movie critic friends. They would watch those doing their professional duties and like our, they'll give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down, you know, well, was that good today or not, you know? You're, you're the clergy, they would say, we're just the laity. We can't do it. Friends, no. In the church of Jesus Christ, there's no distinction between clergy and laity. You know what? We're all clergy. That's why pastors like Tim and I, we don't wear different kinds of clothing. We don't wear a, you know, a, a, a collar of some kind or a robe of some kind. I don't even like titles to be different. I hate it when people call me reverend. I don't really even like to be called pastor all that much. You know, I just like, you know, I'll answer to Gene or hey you or Barbara's husband or your highness or whatever you think, you know, is appropriate. You know, there's a phrase that I wish we would ban permanently from our Christian vocabulary, from the Christian lexicon. And one phrase, it is so destructive and it is absolutely theologically inaccurate to say, and it is this phrase, he or she is in full-time ministry. He's in full-time ministry. She's in full-time ministry. I know what people mean when they say that. I mean, that's how they make their employment and all that kind of thing. I just completely disagree fundamentally with everything that statement stands for. I know what it's supposed to mean. To say that some of us are called to full-time ministry, you know what that suggests? Is that others of us are called to part-time ministry. But friends, Jesus didn't die on a part-time cross. And Jesus doesn't love you with a part-time love. And Jesus doesn't cover your sins with a part-time forgiveness. The day you gave your life to Jesus, you signed up for a full-time ministry employment agreement. And you ought to see yourself wherever God has placed you, in your family, in the marketplace, in education, in the public sector, in the military, in tourism, in entertainment, in manufacturing. You ought to see yourself as a full-time minister there. You say, well, Gene, well, then what's your job? What's, what's our pastor's job? Our job, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is to prepare God's people and equip them to do the work of ministry. You have a new identity. 
When Jesus' ministry opened for business, he didn't list religious professionals. He didn't go to a rabbinical school or a seminary to find people as candidates. He went to some guys who had a family fishing business. He went to a tax collector. Jesus passed over those with master of divinity degrees from the seminaries of that day to call ordinary people to whom God has given a new identity and a new calling. Your identity? You're a minister. You are in full-time ministry. You're a priest, the priesthood of all believers. I laugh when people sometimes ask me, Gene, can women be ministers? Friends, there are no followers of Jesus Christ who are women that are not ministers. All women are ministers. All men are ministers. All students are ministers who follow Jesus. Our golden oldies are ministers who follow Jesus. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. That's who you are, friends. That is your new identity. You are a royal priesthood. I mean, can you imagine if every follower of Jesus were to take this identity seriously? Can you, I mean, think about what 12 ordinary guys did in the Middle East to change the world centuries ago. What could thousands of us do today in this world that needs so much hope? Now, I know immediately what many of you are saying. You say, well, I can't do what you do. I can't do what our pastor does. I can't do what this worship team does. I can't do what those musicians do. And that's good that you can't do those things. Because you have been given your very own personalized spiritual gift. You have your own gift. Just a few passages later, a few pages later in the book of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Notice, each of you should use. It's something you should do. You should use the gift that God has given you. It's the right thing to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 goes on and it says this. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, to each one of us, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. We each are unique. We each have different gifts. And God determined them, not us. He didn't give us a catalog to pick and choose from. You had no more to do with determining your gift than you did determining where you would be born, the parents you would be born to, the shape of your nose. God determines those things. There was a sign outside of a Colorado dude ranch that read, we have horses for everybody. For fast people, we have fast horses. For slow people, we have slow horses. For big people, we have big horses. For little people, we have little horses. For people who have never ridden horses before, we have horses that have never been ridden before. <laughs> you know, in God's ingenious design for his church, he gave us all different gifts. And there's gifts for big people and little people. And there's gifts for young people and old people. It doesn't matter. And if everybody is using their gifts... All the needs get met. Nobody has to burn out. Nobody has to overwork because God distributes the gifts just as he determines. Do you realize how many different gifts people serving have already served us today just so we could be here? 
There were a team of people who got who early, set up orange cones in the parking lot and helped direct traffic. There were people to welcome you at the doors. There were people using their gift to serve at the information center. There were people in the children's ministry to help get your kids checked into a secure environment where they're having a great experience right now. There were people distributing coffee and helping you find CDs and DVDs. There were people who got here before you did to prepare communion trays and there will be those who will clean them up afterwards. There were people handing you a bulletin when you walked in the door and there will be those who will pick up the leftover bulletins on the seats after you leave. There were worship teams who rehearsed and prepared and learned lyrics and they were ready for us today. Do you realize how many different people it's taken just so we could be here today? Different gifts. You know, when I was a kid, and I went out to that park district pool, and I was standing on that diving board for the first time. One of the things you had to think about is, you know, you're not just going to jump, but how you're going to jump. I mean, there's different ways to go off a diving board, right? I mean, some people, when they go off the diving board, they're nose holders, right? How many of you are nose holders when you go off? Yeah, that's good. you're going to do that. And there are other people who they're just going to run with all their might and they're just going to go in and there are those who are going to do a big cannonball and make a splash or a can opener and then there are those who are going to do the swan dive. There are going to those who do a flip when they go off or they're going to try a flip and they're going to belly flip when they go off, belly flop. You know, you don't know what you're going to be good at until you just try it, right? Just try it. You got to just jump in. And then once you just jump in, it starts to inform you. And you're not stuck in that one thing. The rest of it, is you, it informs you about where your gifts are. If you think your gift is teaching, you ought to just jump in and try teaching. If you think your gift is hospitality, you ought to open your home and make it a warm, accepting environment. Or you ought to get environments around here that make this a welcoming place for other people. If your gift is cooking, you ought to invite me over. Because <laughs> my gift is eating. And I'll tell you whether you have the gift of cooking or not. It's time for some of you to risk it and just jump in. You have a new identity as a priest in God's family. You have a supernatural gift that he has given you. And listen to me, this today is your significant moment. It's no accident that you're here today. It's no accident that you're in this church What's happening in this church is no accident. I mean, think about it. Isn't it true that if God wanted you to, you could have been born and lived in the third century, right? Isn't it true if God wanted you to, you could have been born and lived in the 12th century? Isn't it true if God wanted you to, you could have been born and lived all your life in Siberia or Afghanistan or Iceland or Tahiti, which would have been wonderful. <laughs> but for some reason, of all the ages of time on God's continuum, God chose you to live now in the 21st century in this country, sitting in this church at this moment. That's incredible. And I'll tell you something, God doesn't make any mistakes, any mistakes. Never one time as you're reading through the Bible are you going to find God saying, oops. <laughs> it's not there. In fact, I want you to follow along as I read some important words from Acts chapter 17 where it says, from one man, God, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And notice, he determined 
the times set for them. And he determined the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. If you have your outline out, underline that phrase, the times and the exact places. God determined that. He determined where you should be. In other words, from all the ages of time, God handpicked you to be born here, to be in this country, in this church, at this particular time. Friends, there's a reason for that because God doesn't make any mistakes. Of all the ages of times, of all the nations in the world, of all the states, of all the cities, of all the churches, God put you here at this time and this place. That's a little mysterious. Why did he do that? So that people would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him and find him. What a significant moment. This is your moment. Now, to be honest with you, when I was putting this sermon together, my initial thought was, how can I make serving sound like it's not a big imposition on people's time? Because I know most of us, we're really protective of our time. Many of you would rather donate a vital organ than give your time, right? It's just how it is. I don't know if it's like this way at Parkview, but at Eastside, every time we say, hey, if some of you would just change your worship schedule, and if you could come on Saturday night instead of Sunday morning, it would make room for hundreds of others of people to find grace. And you would have thought we would have asked them to drop off their kidney at the information booth on the way out. <laughs> what? Look, <laughs> Saturday night. Oh, you're just asking too much. So before we close, I want to take just a few minutes and I want to remind you of your inspiring example, the one that you follow. There's a scene in John chapter 13. You can turn there if you want to, but I'm just going to tell you the story. It's a very memorable moment. And I want you to pretend that we're there. I want you to pretend that we're standing behind a pane of glass in the upper room in Jerusalem that's been prepared for Jesus and his disciples to have the Last Supper. And we're on one side of the glass. They can't see us. They don't know we're there. We're just watching everything that happens. There was a cultural custom in that day when you're having a dinner party that you would provide a rank-and-file servant at the door. Because in those days, everybody went barefoot or they wore sandals, the roads were dusty, there was not pavement, and then on those same roads, the animals would go and the donkeys and the cattle and the sheep and the camels would leave all their, you know, things behind. It happens. And uh, so people would be walking these dusty roads all day, get all kinds of, you know, uh, nasty stuff between their toes and things like that. And so when you would come in for a dinner party, it was customary to have a rank and file servant at the door who would be there with a towel and a basin of water. And they would wash the dirty feet of the people as they arrived for the dinner party. They would wash their sandals. It was really important in that day because in those days they didn't pull up to a table at a chair and put their feet underneath the table. The tables were about this far off the ground and they reclined. They, they would kind of lean on an elbow or something. And so when you were leaning at the table and you were eating, your feet were dangerously close to the person next to you face. 
and some nasty stuff. And let's face it, feet stink, right? So they would provide a rank and file servant. And so here we are, we're behind the glass and we're watching and the room is empty. And the first disciple shows up and he walks into the room and he doesn't see anybody. And he looks for the rank and file servant and there is no one there. But he does notice by the door there is a pitcher, a basin of water, and a towel. And he thinks to himself, because if there's no rank and file servant, maybe I could, could maybe I should wash my feet and I could wash, and then he, nah, I'm not the rank and file kind. I'm not going to do that. And he blows it off and he, he looks at the table and tries to size up where Jesus is going to sit because he wants to get a prominent place there because he knows Michelangelo is going to paint, uh, Leonardo da Vinci is going to paint a famous painting one day, you know, and he wants to be in a good spot on that. And he sits down. From behind the glass, we watch the second disciple arrive. Notices the basin of water and the towel. Notices the dirty feet of his buddy over by the table. And he thinks, well, if he didn't do it, I'm not going to be the rank and file guy. And he goes and finds the next best place at the table. And one by one, we watch from behind the pane of glass as each disciple comes in. Same drill with everybody. Not me. I'm going to go get the next best place at the table. And soon they're all sitting at the table. And then Jesus arrives. They've been having an argument over which of them is the greatest. And Jesus walks in and he sees all the dirty feet, 24 dirty feet in that room. He looks at the water, the basin, the towel. And I wonder if in that moment if he didn't feel like a failure. I wonder if he thought 24-7 for three years I've been with these guys. I've set example after example, teaching after teaching, illustration after illustration. And I can't get these guys one time to humble themselves and to take on the role of a servant and to wash dirty feet. Jesus finds his place at the table and sometime during the meal he gets up. And he takes off his outer robe like a rank-and-file servant would. And he goes over and he takes the towel and he tucks it into his belt and he pours the water in a basin. And he gets down on his hands and knees and begins one by one, toe by toe, washing the dirty feet of these disciples who felt that they were too good to be the rank-and-file guy. He washes the feet of the one who's going to betray him. He washes the feet of the one who's going to deny him. He washes the feet of all of those who will abandon him in the coming hours when he needs them most as he approaches the cross. And when he's done, he goes back, takes the towel, puts it away, puts on his robe, and rejoins them at the table. I wonder how they felt in that moment. I wonder how moved they were. I mean, think about it. If anyone ever had a reason to be served, Jesus did. Here he is at his greatest hours. He's lived a perfect, sinless life, faced temptation. He's done what nobody else could ever do. In a few hours, he's going to die, and then he's going to raise again. And at the hour, his greatest hour, he's on his hands and knees, washing dirty feet. The greatest among us 
became the servant of all. Now listen, this Jesus who emptied himself on a cross to come and serve you and to set you free and to give you grace, he's given you a new identity. You're a priest. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit who's given you spiritual gifts that are unique to you and this is your moment. He has put you at this time in this church for this season for a reason and he has set the example himself by taking a towel and putting it on his arm and becoming a rank and file servant and he invites you to do the same. So how about you? Are you going to just talk about it? Or are you going to take the risk? And are you going to jump in? You know, I talk to people every day who have this gnawing sense of dissatisfaction, wondering if they're doing anything with their life that really matters. Sometimes I'll talk to financial planners. They'll say, I've been doing this 20, 30 years. I've made millions for my clients. And some days at the end of the day, I wonder if multiplying other people's money is the best use of my life that I could do. Sometimes you talk to people in advertising. You know, Gene, I spend 60, 70 hours a week trying to convince people to buy Fords instead of Chevys or Hondas instead of Toyotas or whatever it is. And sometimes I wonder if I'm doing anything with my life that really matters. Or Gene, I do data entry. I sit at a computer and a screen 40 hours a week. And sometimes when I'm driving home on a Friday afternoon and I'm fighting traffic, I think, what am I doing with my life that really matters? Friends, my fear for some of you is that you'll go to your grave one day without ever living out this new identity that God has given you, without ever experiencing the thrills and chills of what it is to have that sense that God is using you. But it's up to you. There has to come that moment in your life where you risk it and just jump in. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Well, Father, you must have enormous confidence in your church and in each of us to give us gifts, to trust us, to give us a high calling, to believe that ordinary people like us can change the world. And God, I am so inspired by the people in this church who use their gifts week in and week out and who make a difference and mark other lives and who know the thrills and chills of being used by you. I'm so inspired by them. And God, when I think about those who've never taken this jump yet, or maybe it's been a long time since they've taken a leap like this in their life, I'm just sad because I know what they're missing out on. And when I think about what could happen if every single one of us just jumped in in a meaningful, tangible way and used the gifts that you placed within us to advance your hope, I'm overwhelmed to think what you might do in this world. May it be so, God. This is an important season in your church and I pray you would keep your hand on this church. And I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And everybody said, amen.